are delighted to have Father Greg Boyle from Homeboy Industries join us this morning, and clearly that is what you all are here for. The word is out. This is a wonderful, newfangled idea that was established so long ago that has changed the face of Los Angeles. And if you know a little bit or a lot about Father Greg, perhaps you know a little bit or a lot about the people whom he helps mostly working with people who are coming out of gangs and coming out of jail and wanting to not be in that lifestyle. And it's a choice for them. And getting to know who they are and their stories is something that Father Greg has given them the gift of. Because like our Father, God in Heaven, wants to know each one of our stories. Father Greg gets to know these boys and these girls and who they are. And after hearing who they are, transforming their lives through the power of God. And getting to know them is a huge part of it because most of society views them in one way. But God looks at them like created in his image. That's an amazing transformation of a way to look at another human being. And without further ado, I'd like to invite Father Greg Boyle to join us. Please give him a moment. Thank you. I'm uh, privileged to be with you. Um, I, uh, I, I, I apologize if any of you have heard me before, because I know I spoke at the uh, foundation, foundation dinner, so you can just text during my talk, and uh, <laughs> I won't mind. So we're in Lent, and, uh, uh, and you know, billions of people got ashes on Wednesday to start this 40 days, and I, uh, I remember a homegirl named Michelle who w walked into my office. She said, well, it's official. I discovered that my man's been cheating on me. So I went to church, and I got me them ashes, and I gave his ass up for Lent. <laughs> <clears throat> I just thought I would edify you with some Lenten, a Lenten reflection there. Oh, uh, yeah, I went... God doesn't care what, that we give stuff up. God only cares if we give in to the tenderness of God. For it's certainly true that only the soul that ventilates the world with tenderness has any chance at changing the world. And so it's important to kind of know what kind of God we have and what's on God's mind and what kind of praise does God have any interest in? Uh, because we're all called, in the end, to stand at the margins, because that's where Jesus stood. And if you stand at the margins, you look under your feet, then the margins get erased. It's how it works. But it's not some grim duty to follow Jesus out to the margins. That's, that's where the joy is, that my joy may be yours and your joy complete, that's the whole point, is that God wants us to be joyful. So we go to the margins and we help to dismantle the barriers that exclude and we imagine a circle of compassion and then we imagine nobody standing outside that circle. And we go and we stand with the poor and the powerless and the voiceless and with those whose dignity has been denied and those whose burdens are more than they can bear. And everyone in this room knows the privilege and the joy of being able every once in a while to stand 
with the easily despised and the readily left out, with the demonized so that the demonizing will stop, and with the disposable so that the day will come when we stop throwing people away. And to that end, God just hopes that we'll work together to create a community of kinship such that God, in fact, might recognize it. Because in the end, if kinship happened to be our goal, we would no longer be promoting justice. We'd be celebrating it. No kinship, no peace. No kinship, no justice. No kinship, no equality. No matter how singularly focused we may well be on those worthy goals, they actually can't happen unless there's some undergirding sense that we're connected to each other. Mother Teresa diagnosed the world's ills correctly when she suggested that the problem in the world is that we've just forgotten that we belong to each other. So how do we stand against forgetting that? And that's what we're about during this time of Lent, not to give stuff up, but to somehow give into this tenderness so that we can know as Jesus knew in the desert within this kind of mystical union of who God is, then we can choose to be in the world who God is, compassionate, loving kindness. I had a spiritual director many years ago, a Jesuit, who would always say to me, eh, we need a better God than the one we have. <laughs> and I think it's true, you know, I mean, because if we're not careful, our God becomes tiny and puny and made in our image, judgmental, Anne Lamott says that, you know you've created God in your own image when God hates all the same people you do. <laughs> you got to be on the lookout for that, uh, because there is a God we actually have, the real God, and there's the God we settle for, the partial God, the lesser God, the God we live by occasionally, who agrees with us all the time. Um, we need a St. Ignatius of Loyola, I'm a Jesuit, uh, always talks about uh, the God who's always greater. That's what we want. We want to arrive at that God, the God who loves us without measure and without regret. That's the God we want to live by, the God that Jesus knew in the desert. You know, for 30 years I worked with gang members, and it's been the privilege of my life, and the day won't ever come when I am closer to God or am more noble or have more courage than these folks. They just endlessly teach me and shape my heart and alter my way of seeing. And they teach me everything, really, have for 30 years. Like a homie named Joey Ray, who uh, uh, he was a, a homie right out of prison, tattooed, and, and was kind of... A, He's somebody we would send to high schools to speak and stuff, and he was good at it and liked doing it, and he was sort of in demand eventually. <clears throat> and uh, once we went out to dinner, and he was giving me tips on how to speak publicly. <laughs> and he said, you know, you got to pepper your talk with self-defecating humor. <laughs> and I said, yeah, no shit. Uh, <laughs> That's good advice there. <clears throat> and, and so uh, you, somehow you, the homies have taught me about God in ways that are kind of uh, charming and illuminating, usually by way of how they mangle the English language. Uh, you know, like um, 
they kind of out Yogi, Yogi Berra. <clears throat> I had a homegirl named Lisa stand in my office to introduce her man to me. He came to pick her up at the end of the, uh, the work day, and, and she said, this is my sufficient other. <laughs> you know, he said, no doubt. Uh, um, I, you know, I'm on the road a lot and do a lot of things and try to raise money for this organization, which is the bane of my existence. But, uh, so, but I have a CEO who kind of runs the day-to-day, and a great guy named Tom Voso, and he uh, helps uh, do all sorts of things and make sure we meet payroll and uh, that stuff. And so I had a homie come into my office, and he said, Damn, gee, my lady, she is in a bad mood today. And I said, Why? Well, you know, she's beginning her administration period. <laughs> I said, Well, I've just ended mine, so I kind of know what she's going through. Uh, but my favorite one, and it has to do with God, happened when I was saying Mass at San Fernando Juvenile Hall, and I just came from saying Mass at Central Juvenile Hall. There are three juvenile halls in L.A. County. And so I was saying Mass in this big gym, <coughs> and, uh, you know, 300 guys, all guys, mainly gang members, and I was vested with my album stone, sitting on a little folding chair, and and they have these hojas, these sheets that have English and Spanish, the reading. So I was, I thought, well, I'm going to close my eyes and I'm going to listen to the word proclaimed and, and, and just sort of not read along. And so a homie got up and he was reading from the psalm and with kind of an overabundance of confidence. And he got up and he said, the Lord is exhausted. <laughs> and I said, what the hell? And I... And it said, the Lord is exalted. And I remember thinking at the time, wow, that's way better. Because I think, truth be told, the exalted God is created in our own image. You know, if I was God, I would want to be exalted. I would want my name on everybody's lips. And every knee will bend and head will bow. And that's the God I created in my image. But I suspect we have an exhausted God who is too busy loving us to have any time left for disappointment or measuring or somehow, um, you know, the God who looks beyond our fault and sees our need. And so we listen to this God who beckons us to the margins. And we brace ourselves because... People might accuse us of wasting our time at the margins. But the prophet Jeremiah writes, In this place of which you say it is a waste, there will be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voices of those who sing. And you go to the margins so that other voices get heard. They get heard because you went out there. You didn't go there to rescue anybody. But go figure, if you go to the margins, everybody gets rescued. It's how it's supposed to work. So we have the covenantal relationship with our God who says, as I have loved you, now if God was created in my image, I know how that sentence would end. As I have loved you, you better love me back. But that's not what God says. God says, as I have loved you, so must you have a special preferential love 
for the widow, orphan, and the stranger. And the reason God isolates these groupings, subgroupings of the poor is because God knows that these three groups know what it's like to have been cut off. And because they have suffered this particular pain, God thinks they're trustworthy to lead the rest of us to kinship. And that's the hope, that somehow we will find our way out to the margins, because that's where the joy is. And the widow, orphan, and stranger will lead us and remind us of this exhausted God we have, who's extending God's self to us in every moment. But, you know, service is what we kind of begin with, and that's fine to begin there. Just don't end with service. Service is the hallway that gets you to the ballroom. We all want to get to the ballroom, the place of where the illusion that we are separate gets obliterated. How do we move from being separate and superior to connected and compassionate? Because even in service, there's a distance, and we want to eliminate the daylight that separates us even in service, service provider, service recipient. And we talk that way. You know, I want to go to the margins to make a difference. Yeah, well, rethink that one. I had a, a, a hardcore gang intervention worker, former gang member, former felon inmate in Houston who came up to me, really good guy, very earnest, and he says, how do you reach them? I said, for starters, stop trying to reach them. Can you be reached by them? That's the only thing that matters. Can you receive who they are? That's what you want. Can you have your heart altered and reshaped by the widow, orphan, and the stranger, the folks at the margins. I had a woman come to me once, and she was so intent to volunteer, and she said, I have to volunteer at Homeboy Industries. And we have about 300 volunteers there. And I said, why do you have to volunteer at Homeboy Industries? She said, I believe I have a message these young people need to hear. I went, yikes. I said, do me a favor, the minute you lose that message, I hope you'll come back to us. Because <laughs> we don't want any messages. We just want people who are willing to be reached by folks. Because once you do, then everybody inhabits their own nobility. The Buddhists always talk about, oh, nobly born, do not forget who you are. And we don't want to forget either. So there's even a distance in service, and you want to bridge that. One of the great privileges of my life was knowing Cesar Chavez as a friend, best listener I've ever been in the presence of. He singularly focused on you. He laser beam focused. He was never looking over his shoulder, over my shoulder, to see if somebody more important was on the approach. Once famously, a reporter had commented to him, wow, these farm workers, they sure love you. And Cesar just shrugged and smiled and said, the feeling's mutual, which is the hope. How do we arrive at this exquisite mutuality? Not where we're saving the day at the margins, where somehow we're rescuing the widow, orphan, and the stranger. No, where it, we feel ourselves led into our own noble selves 
and we feel the joy, which is why Jesus points us in that direction. No homie ever found more work possibilities at Homeboy Industries than this guy we all called Dreamer. I knew him since he was a little kid growing up in Pico Gardens housing projects. Got into a gang at 13, and, and then he, uh, you know, was getting into trouble and super smart, very intelligent kid, though I can't recall exactly if he ever actually attended school, but um, he had a very dangerous sense of humor, which I've uh, enjoyed to this day. He's about in his early 40s now, but in his early 20s, he was a yo-yo. He was <clears throat> endlessly, uh, I'd find a job for him in the private sector in one of our social enterprises, and then he'd wander back, you know, to vague criminality after I'd found him a job, you know, and usually it was always something involving drugs, the sale of or the use of, and then he'd wander back to me. So it was a pattern that kept repeating itself, and uh, so this one time he had finished a four-month stretch of probation violation um, at county jail, and then so he's sitting in front of my desk at, at Homeboy and. And he says what gang members often say, you know, this time it'll be different. And then I go, mm, okay. So with him sitting there, I call a friend of mine named Gary who runs a vending machine company in Alhambra, not far from here. <clears throat> and he had hired homies in the past, so I, you know, I thought maybe hoping against hope he'll do it again. And, and sure enough, he, uh, he said, yeah, you tell him he can start tomorrow. That's a holy man right there. So Dreamer started work the next day at the vending machine company. Well, two weeks later, there he is again sitting in front of my desk. I couldn't even believe it. I said, Híjole, Madre Santa, here we go all over again. I was annoyed. But then he reached into his pocket <coughs> and he pulled out his very first paycheck. And he said, damn, gee, this paycheck makes me feel proper. I mean, my mom, she's proud of me, and my kids, they're not ashamed of me, and you know who I have to thank for this job. And I said, well, gosh. <laughs> who? And he looked at me strangely, and he said, well, God, of course. And Oh, no, that's right. That, that would be God, yeah. You thought I was going to say you. I said, no, gosh, God's number one. He said, you are so lucky. We're not living in them Genesis days. I'm sorry, them Genesis days? He goes, yeah, because God would have been had struck down your ass already by now, he said. <laughs> well, the only thing I can recall was that we just plain old fell out of our chairs, dying with laughter. And I defy you to identify exactly who's the service provider, who's the service recipient. It's mutual. So Homeboy Industries was born a, a long time ago in, uh, when I was pastor of Dolores Mission Parish, the poorest parish in the city of Los Angeles. Uh, it was the largest, uh, had the largest grouping of public housing west of the Mississippi. That was my parish, Pico Gardens, Aliso Village. It had the highest concentration of gang activity uh, in the world. So if L.A. was the gang capital of the world, uh, then my parish was the gang capital of Los Angeles. 
according to the LAPD, this is what they thought. So um, I buried my first young person, killed because of this sadness in 1988, and I buried my 217th three weeks ago. Not all from that community, of course, but I run a large gang intervention program. I get asked to do this. So the first thing we did in 1988 is we started a school for, uh, because there were so many junior high, middle school age gang members who had been given the boot from their home school. Nobody wanted them. <clears throat> so they were wreaking havoc. They were writing on the walls. They were violent, selling drugs. So I walked out to them, and, and I said, hey, uh, I'd kind of isolate them. I said, hey, you know, if I found a school that would take you, would you go? And to my surprise, they all said, yeah. And then I, I, I couldn't find a school that would take them, so that <laughs> kind of forced my hand a little bit. So across the street from the church was our parochial school, our elementary school from grades K to 8, the whole two first floors. But the entire third floor was the convent, uh, and so I gather all the nuns together in the living room. I sat them down and I said, hey, you know, would you guys mind, uh, you know, moving out? And, uh, <laughs> and we could turn uh, the convent into a school for gang members. And they said, sure, which was the exact uh, uh, extent of their discernment process. They all just went, sure. And so that brought gang members in large numbers to the church, not to church services, but to, to the church property. And, and that kind of upset the apple cart a little bit because uh, parishioners started to say, wait a minute, our church is supposed to be hermetically sealed. Good people in and bad people out. And, and that was a good gospel challenge. In fact, it got right to the marrow of the gospel. <clears throat> then the gang member said, if only we had jobs. So myself and the women in the parish, we marched around the factories surrounding the housing projects, trying to find felony-friendly employers. And that wasn't so forthcoming. So, so we started to invent stuff. You know, We uh, invented a, a maintenance crew and a landscaping crew and a crew to build a child care center, graffiti removal crew, all made up of rival enemy gang members from the eight gangs in the parish. And then 1992 came, and there was the unrest after the Rodney King verdict, and the whole city exploded, those of you old enough to remember 92. <clears throat> and then uh, every pocket, every poor pocket of the city exploded, but not uh, my parish. So um, that was kind of uh, noteworthy, I suppose, and so the LA Times came investigating, and they asked me, why do you think this place didn't... Explode, And I said, well, I think maybe it's because we had 60 strategically hired rival enemy gang members <coughs> who uh, had a reason to get up in the morning and a reason not to torch their community at night. And uh, the next day, a movie producer named Ray Stark, who happened to have $500 million, uh, summoned me. And he said, what should I do with my money? I, now that I think about it, I probably should have aimed higher. But I said, uh, <clears throat> I said, why don't you buy this abandoned bakery across the street from the church? It's got ovens. We could put hairnets on rival enemy gang members, and they could bake bread. We could call it Homeboy Bakery. 
which was the extent of my entire business plan. <laughs> and he said, sure. And so we were off and running. And, and uh, a month later, we started uh, Homeboy Tortillas in the Grand Central Market downtown L.A. Once we had plural, we changed our name from Jobs for a Future to Homeboy Industries, as if there was any industry involved in this venture. Not everything worked. Uh, homeboy plumbing really was not hugely successful. <laughs> Who knew? Uh, people didn't want gang members in their homes. I did not see that coming. And nobody ever intends to do such a thing, but we backed our way into becoming, uh, now we're the largest gang intervention rehab reentry program on our planet. 15,000 folks a year walk through our doors trying to reimagine their lives. There are 120,000 gang members in L.A. County. And um, all, every gang member in the county knows who we are and where we are. But our program is not for those who need help. It's only for those who want it. You have to walk through the doors. Most of the homies who, who walk through the doors want, want to get into our um, 18-month training program because that's a paid gig. And uh, once they get in, uh, you know, we we kind of expect them to do the work, you know, to work on themselves. So there's therapy and there's a lot of healing uh, because an educated inmate may or may not return to prison or an employed one may or may not return to prison. But a healed one, I guarantee you this, won't ever go back to prison, period. I would bet my whole life on that. So they come in, we have therapy, case management, a lot of curricular things, anger management and such. We still have a school. Free tattoo removal. No place on the planet Earth removes more tattoos. Uh, we have a designated clinic. We have uh, three laser machines, one paid physician assistant, 47 volunteer doctors. Um, so it's Monday through Friday, 9 to 5. Um, and it was all started, you know, here's the thing in the gospel, uh, you know, the choice, the strategy of Jesus is about humility and and the opposite of that, of course, is hubris. So humility asks folks on the margins, hey, hey, what would help? Hubris tells people on the margins, here's what your problem is. And so you want to be able to listen always at the margins. And so um, I don't think we have a program that wasn't born from just listening to people. So tattoo removal was born because of a guy named Frank who wandered into my office two days out of Corcoran State Prison, and I had never met him before, and he's sitting in front of my desk and tattooed on his forehead, filling the whole space like a damn big old billboard, and pardon my French, it said, fuck the world. And he looked at me and he said, you know, I am having a hard time finding a job. <laughs> I said, well, Frank, maybe we could put our heads together on this one, you know, and and I'm thinking, where do I send him, you know, to, to McDonald's? You, do you want fries with that? No, I don't want fries. <laughs> Mothers clutching their kids running out of the store. So naturally, I hired him, and he bagged bread for almost two years. And I found a doc at White Memorial Hospital who was a dermatologist and had a laser machine. And he donated one month, excuse me, one hour a month to chip away at Frank's forehead and a few others. In no time at all, I had a waiting list of 3,000 gang members who wanted the same treatment, so we couldn't really stay with that arrangement. Uh, in parentheses, 
To this day, Frank is a security guard at a movie studio in Hollywood, and there is no trace left of the dumbest, angriest thing he had ever done. Proving once and for all that it's true what Sister Helen Prejean always says, that everyone is a whole lot more than the worst things they ever did. And so we have all our social enterprises, mainly born because it was hard to find uh, employers. We still have employment development department where folks are uh, trying to find employers willing to hire our folks, especially after our 18 months have been, uh, they've completed. <clears throat> so we have Homeboy Bakery, Homeboy Silkscreen, Homeboy Homegirl Merchandise, where we sell our logo stuff. Um, Homeboy Diner, the only place you can get food at City Hall. We have a thing called Homeboy Grocery, which is uh, where we sell our chips and salsas and all the Ralphs from San Luis Obispo to San Diego. Uh, if you ever fly American Airlines Terminal 4, we have a restaurant there at LAX. Uh, we just started a new thing called Homeboy Recycling, uh, e-waste. I don't even really understand entirely what that is, but... Uh, <laughs> If you have any of it lying around, <laughs> bring it to us. Um, what else? Uh, uh, and Homegirl Cafe, where women with records, young ladies from rival gangs, waitresses with attitude, will gladly take your order. <laughs> uh, it's kind of a who's who. If you ever go there, you're going to run into uh, celebrities and electeds. Uh, Vice President Joe Biden came with only two hours' notice with motorcade and uh, Secret Service. It was quite something. Selfies with Joe. <laughs> and once famously, Diane Keaton uh, came, uh, Oscar winner, movie star, Godfather movies. Uh, she was there with a regular, a guy who's there once a week. And her waitress is Glinda. And Glinda's a big girl, been there, done that, tattooed, felon, parolee. She does not have a clue who Diane Keaton is, and so she's taking her order, and Diane Keaton says, what do you recommend? And, and Glinda rattles off the three dishes she really likes, and, and Diane Keaton says, well, I'll have that second one. That one sounds really good. And it's at that moment, for some reason, something dawns on Glinda. She, she looks at Diane Keaton, she says, wait a minute. I feel like I know you from somewhere. You know, like maybe we've met. And Diane Keaton decides to deflect it humbly. Oh, gosh, I don't know. I suppose I have one of those faces that people think they've seen before. And, and then Glenda goes, no, now I know. We were locked up together. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, well, that just took my breath away. And... Uh, and I, I don't believe we've had any further Diane Keaton sightings now that, now that I think of it. Uh, but suddenly, kinship so quickly, Oscar-winning actress, attitudinal waitress. It's the whole point. This is God's dream come true, that you may be one. Suddenly, kinship. It's the only thing that matters to God. I'll be honest with you. Because God doesn't want anything from us. God only wants for us. And God knows that if you go to the margins and somehow we achieve with God's grace some kinship and connection, that's where the joy is. So God doesn't, it's not a grim duty. It's about joy. That my joy may be yours and your joy complete. 
And how does that happen? From moving from being separate and superior to connected and compassionate. It's about kinship. And so we're all invited to be enlightened witnesses, people who through your kindness and tenderness and focused attent of love return people to themselves. At Homeboy, we're, we're just completely allergic to the notion of holding the bar up and asking people to measure up. And the reason is, is God doesn't do this ever. God's love for me is zero dependent on my love for God. I don't have to measure up to anything. So why would we do this with each other? Measure up. Instead, we show up and we hold the mirror up and we tell people the truth, knowing that my truth is your truth and your truth is a gang member's truth. It's all the same truth. Here's the truth. You are exactly what God had in mind when God made you. And then you watch folks on the margins as they become that truth, as they inhabit that truth. Oh, nobly born, do not forget who you are. But at Homeboy, we're endlessly needing to reach in and dismantle the messages of shame and disgrace that get in the way that keep people from seeing their truth. It's true enough what Marcus Borg used to say, that the principal suffering of the poor is throughout Scripture and throughout history is shame and disgrace. We, we kind of want to uh, live in such a way as, uh, as, as is portrayed in the Acts of the Apostles. You know, see how they love one another. Or there's nobody needy in this community, it says. But it also says an odd thing. And awe came upon everyone. It would seem that the measure of our health as a community may well reside in our ability to stand in awe at what the poor have to carry rather than stand in judgment at how they carry it. So some years ago, I was invited to speak to 600 social workers in Richmond, Virginia, and I said yes, and it was, I knew it was an all-day gang-in service from 9 to 5 in this hotel ballroom. I figured, you know, I don't know, I'll probably do a keynote or speak at lunch or wrap it up at the end. And then close to the time, I pulled out the letter, and híjole, I am to be the only speaker from 9 to 5. And so I quickly uh, invited two homies, Andre and uh, Jose. I sit them down. Both of them are trainees and gang members. I said, look, you're flying with me at the end of the week to Richmond, Virginia. I'd like you to get up and tell your stories. Take your time. Because <laughs> we got a long-ass day to fill. Well, I'd never heard their stories, and Jose gets up, and uh, he's 25 years old, and he's finishing up his 18 months as a trainee there, and we'd go through different phases, and uh, he's in his last phase, but he's ended up kind of being a very valued member of our substance abuse team, a man solid in his own recovery. Now he's helping younger homies with their addiction issues. A gang member, tattooed, been to prison for a stretch, but he also had a long period of time as a homeless man, and an even longer period as a heroin addict. So he gets up in front of these 600 social workers, and he says, I, I guess you could say my mom and me, we didn't get along so good. I, I think I was six when my mom looked at me and said, 
Why don't you just kill yourself? You're such a burden to me. Well, 600 social workers audibly gasp. And then he says, it sounds way worser in Spanish, he said, you know. <laughs> we got whiplash going from gasp to laugh. I think I was nine, he said, when my mom drove me to the deepest part of Baja California and she walks me up to an orphanage and she knocks on the door and when the guy comes to the door, she says, I found this kid and she left me there for 90 days until my grandmother could get out of her where she had dumped me and my grandmother rescued me. My mom beat me every single day of my elementary school years with things you could imagine and a lot of things you couldn't. Every day my back was bloodied and scarred. In fact, I had to wear three t-shirts to school every day. First t-shirt, because the blood would seep through. Second t-shirt, you, you, you could still see the blood. Finally, the third t-shirt, you couldn't see any. Kids at school, they make fun of me. Hey, fool, it's 100 degrees. Why are you wearing three t-shirts? And then he stopped speaking so overwhelmed with emotion, and he seemed to be staring at a piece of his story that only he could see. And when he could regain his speech, he said through his tears, I wore three t-shirts well into my adult years because I was ashamed of my wounds. I didn't want anybody to see them. And now I welcome my wounds. I run my fingers over my scars. My wounds are my friends. After all, how can I help heal the wounded if I don't welcome my own wounds? And awe came upon everyone. The measure of our compassion lies not in our service of those on the margins, but only in our willingness to see ourselves in kinship with them. Because truth be told, if we don't welcome our own wounds, we may well be tempted to despise the wounded. So let me end with this last story, and then uh, I'm going to open it up uh, for some questions to uh, finish up our hour here. That clock is wrong. Um, <clears throat> it occurs to universities mainly to occasionally, um, like this church, to, to force people to read my book against their will. Uh, um, and I'm not complaining, neither is, neither is my publisher. But uh, so I, you know, was invited by Gonzaga University, which is my alma mater in Spokane, and they forced the freshmen to read my book. So, and they said, "Please bring two homies with you." And and uh, I always bring homies if they pay, you know, uh, for them to go. And I always pick homies the same way. I pick homies who are rivals, enemies, just so I can force them to share a hotel room together, just to mess with them. 
<clears throat> and I always pick homies who have never flown before just for the thrill of seeing gang members panicked in the sky. Um, uh, it took two homies recently to D.C. and uh, older vatos, you know, and, and one guy said, hey, gee, are we flying Virgin Airlines because it's our first time? I said, yes, in fact, it's a requirement. Not a lot of people know that, so you can fly southwest after that. But, uh. So I picked two homies, um, uh, Mario, who at the time worked in our merchandise store, and Bobby, who worked in our bakery. And so um, <clears throat> I've done this hundreds and hundreds of times with men and women, and never have I taken anybody so terrified of flying then this guy, Mario, oh my God, he was just, he was hyperventilating. He, oh, he. We hadn't even gotten on the plane yet, you know, and so um, we flew out of Burbank Airport, and you know, it's tiny, and Southwest Airlines, big bay windows, but they don't have that hermetically sealed chute you use to board the plane. They, you have to walk out onto the tarmac like the president, and you have to walk up these steps to get to the front of the plane. Of course, the big feature at Burbank is the steps also at the back of the plane. And so <clears throat> I'm sitting there with Mario, and our plane arrives. It's early morning. People are getting off the plane. I said, that's our plane. <gasps> Literally like that. I mean, I, I, I thought he may well die before we climb those stairs. And then I see two flight attendants, females, both with very large cups of Starbucks coffee, and they're schlepping up the, the front steps to get into, onto the plane. And and Mario goes, when are we going to board the plane? And I said, you know, as soon as they sober up the pilots. Uh, <coughs> there they go now. Okay, maybe I shouldn't have said that. You know, so I should tell you that Mario, in my 30 years of working with gang members, nobody has ever worked at Homeboy Industries more tattooed than this guy. So he's all sleeved out, his whole arms covered in tattoos. Neck blackened with the name of his gang, head shaved, covered in tattoos, and cheek and forehead and chin covered. So I'd never been in public with him, so as I'm walking through the Burbank airport, you know, people are like this, you know, and <laughs> mothers are clutching their kids a little more closely. And I'm thinking, wow, that's interesting, because if you were to go tomorrow to Homeboy and ask anybody, who's the kindest, most gentle, tender soul who works here? They won't say me. They'll say, uh, Mario, of course, Mario. He now works, uh, he sells baked goods, if any of you have gone there. He, behind the counter, he handles you. Kind, gentle, tender, tender, tender. He is proof that only the soul that ventilates the world with tenderness has any chance at changing the world. So we get to Gonzaga. Tuesday night is the big talk, a huge venue, like 2,000 people. But the, during the day, they don't tell you this part, that there are 95 other talks that they have you do, you know, and this class, this class, this lunch, this class. So I tell Mario and Bobby, I said, look, I'm not going to speak at any of these. I want you to get up, and I'm going to sit in the back of the classroom. And So they get up, and they're nervous, especially Mario, but they do an amazing job. <sighs> Stories of terror and torture and violence and abuse of every imaginable kind. Some of it unimaginable. And honest to God, if their stories had been flames, you'd have to keep your distance. Otherwise, you'd get scorched. 
I would not have survived a single day in either of their childhoods. So uh, when the nighttime comes, you know, a huge venue, I, I said, look, here's what I want you to do. I want you two to get up and do a little five-minute thing so that I can bring you back up after my deal and include you in the question and answer. And, they, and they're terrified, especially Mara, but they do a good job. I finish my thing, and then I invite them to stand on either side of me, and I said, yeah, yes, ma'am, and a woman stands. She goes, yeah, I got a question. It's for Mario. First question out the gates for Mario. And Mario, he's just this tall, skinny drink of water, and he grabs the microphone, and he's just trembling. Yes. And he's just terrified. And she says, well, you say you're a father, and you have a son and a daughter, and they're about to enter their teenage years. What wisdom do you impart to them? You know, what advice do you give them? And Mario closes his eyes, and he's just trembling. I can feel the heat of his own emotions rising, and he's trembling, and he's getting a damn hernia trying to come up with whatever the answer is. And when suddenly he blurts out, I just... As soon as he says those two words, he retreats back to his microphone, clutching, eyes closed retreat, and he's trembling all the more. And it feels like he's losing this battle. But he wants to get this sentence out. I just don't want my kids to turn out to be like me. And there's silence until the woman who asked the question, she stands again, and this time it's her turn to cry. Why wouldn't you want your kids to turn out to be like you? You are gentle. You are kind. You are loving. You are wise. I hope your kids turn out to be like you. And 2,000 total perfect strangers stand and they will not stop clapping. And all Mario can do is hold his face in his hand so overwhelmed that this room full of strangers had decided to return him to himself. Oh, nobly born, do not forget who you are. And they in turn also return to themselves because it's mutual. And I think that's the only praise God has any interest in. Why would you give stuff up when you could give in to the tenderness of God for only the soul that ventilates the world with tenderness has any shot at leading us to the kinship of God and pretty soon you cease to care whether anyone accuses you of wasting your time for in this place of which you say it is a waste there will be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness the voices of those who sing. We go to the margins because that's where the joy is and that's how new voices get heard. Thank you very much.
So. That's wonderful. So, we, uh, we would like some questions. Yeah, so that's what I'm going to do. So, so go ahead and just raise your hand, and I'll, I'll yes. SJ, is that St. John of God? It's the Society of Jesus, like the Pope. It's a Jesuit. And uh, so uh, the Jesuits were founded in 1540 by St. Ignatius of Loyola. The homies don't know what SJ stands for either. You know, they, we have tours all the time, and, and they'll walk past my door, my office, which is a big glass-enclosed area. And, and it's kind of like, you know, observe our founder in his natural habitat. And, uh, <laughs> and so I'm sitting there talking to a homie, and I can see them. Hi, how are you? And, and he says, this is Father Greg Boyle, our founder. He's a jujitsu priest. <laughs> So I gave them my best, uh, but those are the Jesuits. The Pope's a Jesuit, I'm proud to say. Yes, back there. Yeah, that's an excellent question. You know, uh, we always say uh, we don't want anybody working at Homeboy, a trainee, who's there for the check, only the person who's there for the change. And we always talk about you got to do the work. And the work is this internal work where you can come to terms with what's been done to you and come to terms with what you've done to people so that you can re-identify who you are in the world and then you leave our place transformed and uh, and now the world will throw at you what it will but this time you won't be toppled by it so that's the work you know uh, kind of a long story but uh, myself and four homies met uh, Barack Obama at, at LA Trade Tech and he asked this homie Herbie who was 19 years old African American so where do you work Herbie at Homeboy Industries I work at the diner but I mainly work on myself you know, uh, therapy, anger management. Yeah, I, I mainly work on myself. And the leader of the free world shook his hand and said, I commend you, which, of course, is commendable. It is commendable. I, I always call Homeboy uh, Industries kind of a, uh, the discovery channel because homies are always discovering stuff. And So a guy named Jermaine, who's 30 years old, African-American gang member, He'd only been with us four months, and he said, I discovered something today. So he told me he retrieved a memory. And the memory was uh, he was nine years old, and he was lying on his stomach really close to the TV, and then he could see through the corner of his eye peripheral vision. Somebody had come into the room, and, and it was his mom, and his mom was standing in the doorway. And he brings focus onto her and notices that she has both arms outstretched, and then he sees that she has deeply and profoundly slit her wrists and blood is coursing onto the floor. And then she says to her nine-year-old boy, see what you made me do. And the next day he was taken from her care and put in the foster care system. Most telling of all was that his other brother and sister stayed right where they were. 
So at nine, he went to foster care. At 13, he got into a gang. And at 17, he was raised from that moment forward by the being incarcerated. Here was his discovery that day in my office. Sobbing, sobbing, sobbing. He said, I discovered only today that I have always preferred my rage to my shame. And because he made that, Discovery in a community of tenderness. For the first time in his life, he was able to forgive his mother for having been mentally ill and forgive himself for having once been a nine-year-old boy. That's what we care about. It's not about building character. It's not about training. It's not about learning skills. If you can get to that place, you're going to be fine. You won't ever go back to prison. You won't ever go back to your gang. You'll be fine. Anybody else? See, we don't need too many. Every question will lead to a long-ass answer. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, again, do I immediately trust them to walk through the door? And, and it's, Homeboy Industry is a little bit like any AA meeting. You know, who's there? Somebody who's 20 years sober, somebody who's 20 minutes sober, and somebody who's drunk. But they're there. And that's kind of what Homeboy feels like only all the time. Um, it's interesting, with homeless folks and with gang members, there's the same kind of principle. So homeless and gang members are always operating on survivor brain, which is a bad place from which to operate because there's such chronic, overwhelming, enormous, relenting stress that if you have to operate in survivor brain, you're watching over your shoulder, you're wondering what's going to happen next, it's too stressful. So that's why it's important with both groups to create a sanctuary where they can come and they are relieved of their chronic stress in a place of tenderness. Then they can do the work. You know, you need to take meds. You need to stop smoking marijuana. You need to come to terms with what was done to you as a kid. You need to acknowledge what you did to folks. But that can only happen if they've been allowed to be in a place of healing and tenderness that, that gives them permission to do that essential work. Healing ends in the graveyard, of course, but there's an essential healing that if that can happen, we give them 18 months, if that can happen, then they're, they're, they're kind of off uh, to the races, you know, that they're able to build on that foundation. How about, uh, well, we got time for a couple more. Yeah, yes, ma'am. Yeah. So I don't know what we have. It's a fluid thing. We have part-timers. We have full-timers. We have probably 350 at any given time. And, uh, and people leave, you know. Uh, the only thing we really measure is cooperation. Meet us halfway. That's all we ask. Just meet us halfway. You know, if you don't show, then you're telling us that you're not ready. We think you're great, but you're not ready. Come back when you're ready. Most of the home gang members who run the place were folks I had to say, come back when you're ready. Because it's not for everybody, and it's not exactly, you know, right there when people 
um, <clears throat> are ready to do this, you know. I learned a lot in 30 years, you know. In the early days, it was all about dispatching gang members to jobs. But then there was no healing. So the minute somebody threw a monkey wrench, you know, his lady leaves him. He's back. He relapses in a sense. He goes back to the neighborhood. And I have a guy in mind who really I found him a career. And he's doing 125 to life in Folsom. And that's because there was no essential healing done. So we kind of, you know, our, our T-shirts say, nothing stops a bullet like a job. Kind of creaky, a little bit old. I don't really believe it anymore. Though we still sell the T-shirts, you know. <laughs> um, but So I've learned a lot in 30 years. Yes, sir. Go. Peter. Do we have helpers in, am I working too hard? <laughs> this is the man who saved me from uh, leukemia, so I'm uh, grateful to you, Peter. I always will be. Yeah, I have a lot of homies who run the place. I don't have to run it anymore, you know. I'll be there a little bit this week, and then I'm off again with some homies. I probably would want to have more balance in my life. That sounds what my doctor might say, right? Yeah. So. <laughs> uh, I loved your book, by the way. I loved your book. Thank you. Yes, sir. I want to understand, given how uh, young men smell the testosterone and all sorts of other issues, how you can uncouple driving gang issues. It just seems like it would be such a near impossible. Yeah, the, the rivalry and the enemies between gangs, you know, it's not very rational. It's not, uh, um, you know, uh, I'll, I'll end with this story. How about that? Because we're right about, and that clock is wrong. I'm telling you this. So uh, it's close. So uh, people always ask, how can enemies work side by side, you know? And, and homies, there's a, they, there's a common interest. They all would love to have clean, honest, decent money. They'd like to feel good about themselves. So that's a basic human thing. They want their moms to be proud of them. They don't want their kids to be ashamed of them. So that's a principle. So I had a homie who I thought was ready. His name was, uh, everybody called him Youngster. He was 19 years old, little short kid. So I think he's ready. So I bring him to Homeboy Silkscreen to introduce him to our 30 coworkers, his 30 coworkers. And Homeboy Silkscreen's been around for 22 years, and thousands of enemy rival gang members have worked there. Gang members always say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work with them, but I'm not going to talk to them, you know. But, of course, everybody knows that it's impossible to demonize somebody you know. So, so I bring in youngster. I introduce him to all his co-workers. He shakes hands with every single one, all in, most of them enemies. And I think, wow, this is great. Until he gets to the last guy, a guy who seems to be wanting to avoid this encounter altogether, a guy named Puppet. And uh, they, they mumble something. They stare at their shoes. They don't shake hands. Well, I know they're enemies because I know what gangs they're from. But he just shook hands with a whole bunch of other enemies. 
I find out later that this is a uh, hatred that's really quite personal, very deep, beyond which neither of them think they can get past. So, so I sensed that much at the moment. I said, look, if you guys can't hang working together, let me know. I got a bunch of people who want this job, and they don't say anything. Well, six months later, Puppet leaves his home uh, to go to a corner store some distance from his house. He buys something. On his way home, for some reason, he decides to take a shortcut. So he dodges into an alley. And because he took this detour, suddenly, unexpectedly, he's surrounded by ten members of a rival gang, ten against one. And they beat him badly. And uh, he falls to the ground and these guys will not stop kicking his head until he's lifeless. Somebody finds his body, takes him to White Memorial Hospital, where he's declared effectively brain dead. But they, you know, they wait. The protocol, I guess, is to wait two days and so you can get a flat read in terms of brain activity and so you can sign the death certificate. So this allowed family and friends to visit during those 48 hours, and I was at St. Louis University giving a talk I flew home immediately. I've seen a lot of horrible things in my life, but nothing to compare to the sight of this young man with his head swollen many times its size. It was horrifying. You could barely train your eyes on him. So at the end of the 48 hours, as a priest, I anointed his forehead with oil, said a blessing. We disconnected. A week later, I buried him. But in the first 24 hours, as, I was, uh, as he was lying still beaten in the hospital, I was alone in my office, 8.30 at night. The phone rings, and it's, it's youngster, Puppet's co-worker from the silkscreen factory. And he says, hey, that's messed up about what happened to Puppet. And I said, yeah, it is. And then with a certain kind of eagerness even, he says, is there anything I can do? Can I give him my blood? And we both fall silent under the weight of it until finally he breaks the silence, choking back his tears. And he says with great deliberation, he was not my enemy, he was my friend. We worked together. Now can I say that always happens at Homeboy? Yeah. Any exceptions? No. Can't think of a single time. And it shouldn't surprise us that God's own dream come true for us, that we be one, just happens to be our own deepest longing for ourselves. Because it turns out It's mutual. Thank you all very much.
listen to more of Father G's stories. And it is truly remarkable that the gospel really becomes tangible to us in these, these stories of these homies with names, and we're going to get to know them. So throughout this journey of Lent, we encourage you to join a small group, read the book yourself, and be a part of our church's small group if you can't during this hour. Because the stories are so real, and you'll get to know not only who the people are, the Marios and the, the puppets and the Kikis, but you'll get to know who you really are through these stories because they're God's stories for you. So we're going to ask Father G to pray for us as we are on this Lenten journey as, as brothers and sisters in Christ going on a big Lenten journey throughout um, all of the world. So let us uh, bow our heads and pray for God's blessing. Loving and faithful God, compassionate and true. We are overwhelmed by your offer of tenderness, and you invite us to be in the world who you are. Your son wants us to take seriously what he took seriously inclusion, nonviolence, unconditional loving kindness, and acceptance. Help us to know how to be a counterweight in the world that wants to exclude and respond violently and put conditions on love and to engage in wholesale rejection of people. Help us to live as though the truth were true and to put first things recognizably first. And we make this prayer always with the same and great confidence through Christ our Lord. Amen.